Good morning. Now, as you know, I'm not a pastor here, but I am one of the Bible teachers. And as being a Bible teacher, they offer me latitude that usually a person wouldn't have. And so I get to do things that I want to do sometimes. And one of the things I decided to do as a teacher is to have a pop quiz. Aren't you guys excited? No, you're not. So I was told I could have a pop quiz if I made it fun. So we're going to have a pop quiz in the form of Jeopardy. If you've never played Jeopardy before, they give you the answer and you have to come up with a question. Okay? So I'm going to give you an answer. Just shout it out in the form of a question if you know the answer. And the topic we're going to do today is famous endings to books. <laughs> <laughs> We'll just skip to the end of everything. <laughs> Famous endings to books, okay? And the first one is worth 600 shillings from Kenya. I have no idea how much that is, but it sounds like a lot of money. Okay, and I'll give you a hint. It's children's literature. Children's literature, make sure it's in the form of a question. So here's the answer. But wherever they go and whatever happens to them on the way, in that enchanted place, on top of the forest, a little boy and his bear will always be playing. Yeah, and the answer, of course, is Winnie the Pooh. Now, Winnie the Pooh is a very sad book, in my opinion, if you look at it. And it's very sad because the main character, Christopher, is leaving his childhood. And he leaves his childhood, he's also going to leave Winnie the Bear behind. Despite assurances that they'll always be together, things are coming up in his life. Girls, school, job, children. And that bear is going to be collecting dust in the attic someday. And so it's a very sad book, I think. But still, it's worth reading. Okay, the next one, worth 800 Kenya shillings. And I'll give you a hint. It's adult fiction. Adult fiction. And the answer is, I'm so glad to be home again. I heard it over here in the form of a question. What is the Wizard of Oz? And if you didn't get it by that, the line before it says, and here is Toto, two, and O and M. I'm so glad to be home again. And it's from the wonderful Wizard of Oz. But you know, the Wizard of Oz, well, I hate to say it, that's a sad story too. Because what we find is the main character, Dorothy, finds herself in a very unusual culture in which she struggles. There's witches, flying monkeys, things without hearts, and she's always trying to get home. And that kind of, in a way, reminds me of what's happening today with our culture. I seem to have struggles with it. When I was growing up, there were two sexes. You were a boy or a girl. And now there's 56 different genders that I can't keep track of. You know, I remember when George Washington was a good person and you were proud of him. And the culture is changing so quick, even Dr. Seuss isn't safe. So from the land of Oz, said Dorothy, gravely. She said it gravely at the end. And here is Toto too, an O-N-M, and I'm so glad to be home again. Well, there are times I wish I'm home again too in the 1970s, when things were a lot easier. Okay. Now we're at a thousand Kenya shillings. This is the most difficult of all the questions. 
So again, make sure it's in the form of a question. And I'll give you a hint. It has to do with political allegory. When I was in high school, you didn't graduate from high school till you knew this book, till you read it and you understood it. So here's the answer. The creatures outside looked from pig to man, and from man to pig, and from pig to man again. But already it was impossible to tell which was which. Not Lord of the Flies. Make it in the form of a question. What is Animal Farm? And that's right. It's where a series of animals realize that the person in charge of them, the farmer, is cruel and sadistic. So they try and get rid of the farmer, and they band together underneath the pigs, especially one called Napoleon, and they get rid of the farmer, but they institute their own brand of justice. And in that own brand of justice, they turn out to be just as bad as the men. And it has to do, theoretically, with the Russians getting rid of their government and ending up with Stalin. But the creatures looked from pig to man and man to pig, and they could not tell the difference. So if you want to get rid of one government, the government you may end up with could be worse than the one you had. And that's got to be scary. So all these very scary books have these endings. Well, now it's time for Final Jeopardy. And Final Jeopardy is a little bit different. You don't yell out the answer, you write down the answer. So as you came in the door, hopefully you were given a pen and a tablet of paper by the ushers. No? Okay, then just write it down on your forehead. So nobody yells out an answer here, but this is what the book, and it has to do with famous endings to books. So think about the answer, but nobody shouts it out. You all write it down. And the answer is, for they were afraid. Think about it, what book ends with, for they were afraid? And the answer is, well, since I'm a good teacher, I'm not gonna tell you the answer right now. I'm gonna keep you waiting till the end of it. So if by the end of it, I don't tell you, I want somebody to raise their arm and wave and say, hey, we never heard the ending. You can think about it for a while. Okay, go ahead and if you have your Bibles or if you have a tablet, go ahead and our Bible study is gonna be in the book of Mark. So turn to the book of Mark and everybody stand up. And as the custom at Calvary Chapel, we all stand for the reading of the word. Now, if you can't stand up, that's fine. And we're gonna do the entire chapter of the book of Mark today. We're gonna to tell Ben can get only get through one line, but we're gonna get through an entire chapter. So this is the gospel of Mark, chapter 16, beginning in verse one. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb where the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. In entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he said to you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling 
and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And thus ends the book of Mark. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know you don't give us a spirit of fear. We just ask that you make what you want us to know from this scripture clear to us, and that the lesson will stay with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For they were afraid. Now the first question you're going to ask me is, where does Mark really end? Does all your Bibles end in verse 8? Well, what verse does it go to then? 19? 20? Different things, different places where it ends. So where does Mark really end? What about verses 9 through 20? Well, the reason why a lot of people don't believe they belong in the book of Mark is because the oldest known manuscripts, they're not included, those last verses. Some writings of the early church fathers reflect no knowledge about these verses whatsoever. If you look at the vocabulary in verses 9 through 20, it's different than the vocabulary of the rest of Mark. The style, the literary style that it's written in is different, and the content is different than the rest of the book of Mark. So a lot of people have thought Mark didn't write this at all. Somebody else wrote it. And several theories have come up as to what's going on here. One theory is that the original ending was lost and that another inspired author came along later and finished it. Well, one of the problems with that is if you have a scroll and it breaks off and you lose that portion, the way a scroll is wound is the outside of the scroll is the first part of the book. The inside of the scroll is the last part of the book. And that if part of it was lost, it would have had to been the inside that was broken off. And that doesn't seem too likely. The other possibility is that the author died before it was completed. That Mark did write the book of Mark, didn't have a chance to finish it, and he died. But nowhere else does anybody talk about Mark dying. Paul doesn't talk about him dying. The early church fathers don't talk about him dying before it was completed. So that seems a little unlikely. Another theory is that Mark did finish it, but he finished it much later, so the early versions didn't have the finished product, and the later versions did have the finished project. But remember what we said, it's a different literary style, a different context, different vocabulary. So that seems a little bit unlikely too. What I'd like to discuss with you today is for consideration is that Mark intended for the scripture to end there. He intended the book of Mark to end with the words, and they were afraid. Now that doesn't seem like a very nice place to end a book, does it? Especially if you're talking about one of scripture, it should be uplifting. Why would you end it on that note? Now, real answer, I don't know which one of these theories is correct and others have been offered, but let's just for the few minutes we have together, think about did Mark intend for it to be there. Now, if we can say the book of Mark doesn't, doesn't contain just Mark's writings, can we trust the book of Mark at all? What about the rest of the book? Can we trust that? Well, if you look what's found in Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, and you look what part of this, the words in there are a new revelation, something that isn't found anywhere else in the Bible, something that's totally different, what percentage do you think that is? 
And the answer is zero. There's nothing in Mark 16, 9 through 20 that you can't find anywhere else in the Bible. So I think what's in there is accurate, but it's almost like an epilogue. Somebody wrote it, said kind of, this is kind of a strange ending, let's clarify the ending a little bit. But there's nothing new there. So I think the book of Mark is totally trustworthy. And the early church fathers all agreed with that as well. So let's go by verse and verse. And we're trying to work our way to verse 8. Okay? And everything in verses 1 through 7 is building up to what we find in verse 8. So it said, when the Sabbath was over, why is Mark telling you about the Sabbath? It's been several days that Jesus has been in the tomb. He wasn't in there for five minutes. He's been in there for days. It says, Mary Magdalene, the mother, and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might anoint him. Now, there are several women not mentioned that did come to the tomb as well. These particular women were also present at the crucifixion. And so they saw Jesus, and they knew Jesus was dead when he came down from the cross. And I think that's why they're anointed by Mark here. And it said they anointed him. Anointed has two words. One Greek word means to smear, and so they were smearing him. And the second word means it was a sacred and religious context that this smearing was going on. The Jews didn't embalm people, so this is not embalming him, but they're covering him with spices, anointing him in a sacred religious context. So the women knew that Jesus was special. He was different. Verse 2, And very early on the first day of the week, this is the first Easter on Sunday, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. I always like John talks about light and dark in terms of spiritual enlightenment and spiritual darkness. And they went to the tomb when it was dark. Can mean that it was just literally dark out. Or they showed up going when they were spiritually enlightened. Then at the tomb became light. They began to understand things more in a spiritual way. It said the sun had risen. Verse 3, and they were saying to one another, and the word saying here is they kept repetitively saying, saying over and over and over again, who will roll away the stone for the entrance? Now it seems like the women weren't frightened about the sentries that were going to be posted. Did they forget? Did they not know? They don't seem like they were frightened about the seal that was on it, that if they roll away the stone, whoever does that has a death sentence upon them. They just wanted to get to Jesus and to anoint him. And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. The word rolled, the tense means it was rolled away once, once and for all. It's never going to be rolled away again. So it was rolled away once. We don't have to worry about it going back in place. And it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right wearing a white robe. Now, some of your versions may say brilliant. And they were amazed. Does anybody have frightened instead of amazed? Alarmed, amazed, frightened. And he said to them, do not be amazed. Do not be alarmed. This is an imperative. It's a command. I command you, don't be frightened. That's what the man was saying. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who has been crucified. Again, the perfect tense, once and for all, never has to be done again. 
You're looking for Jesus now, crucified. He has risen. That's in the passive tense. And what the passive tense means, the difference between the boy hit the ball and the boy was hit by the ball. The active tense, the boy is hitting the ball, the boy is doing something, the boy was hit by the ball, passive just has to do it, just has to be there. And so it's the passive tense saying God had risen, Jesus. He is not here, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter. Why did he single out Peter? I think it was because Peter denied him three times. And if anybody, Peter was the saddest person at this time. He, referring to Jesus, is going before you into Galilee. Now, if we had a chance, I'll get back to that Galilee. Why Galilee? Did you ever think about that? Of all the places he could meet with these disciples, he chose Galilee, not Jerusalem, but Galilee. There you will see him just as he said to you. And in verse 8, the one I wanted to get to, it says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Did you ever think about the words, they said nothing to anyone? Why did they not talk to anybody about this? Jesus, several times during the ministry, would tell people, don't tell anyone. Mark, first chapter, Jesus talks to a leper, and he tells the leper, I'm going to heal you, but don't tell anybody. And what does the leper do? But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but he stayed out in an unoccupied area, and they were coming to him from everywhere. So Jesus tells you, don't tell anyone, and could the person stop himself from telling? No, he couldn't. But we have these women who were not told not to say anything, who were given the greatest news of all kind, that Jesus had arose from the dead, and what are they doing? They're not telling people. They wanted to tell the disciples first. Would you wait, or would you tell everybody on the way? Anybody you ran into? You know, that may be possible. Mark 7, again, the same book. They're talking about the deaf. And he, capital H, referring to Jesus, gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more, the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. Don't tell anybody. I don't care. We're going to tell people. But the women at the tomb said nothing to no one, at least on the way to the disciples, right? And if you think it's just the book of Mark, here's one from Matthew. Matthew 9, 30 and 31. And their eyes were open and Jesus sternly warned them saying, see that no one hears of this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the land. Don't tell anyone. They couldn't help. But here we have a bunch of women that said nothing to anyone. Now, if you read some commentaries that will talk about, well, the reason why Mark put in they didn't tell anything to anyone is they're not making the story up together. Like it really didn't happen, but they're talking amongst themselves on the way back to the disciples. They're getting their lies into order. But here, if they're not talking to each other, they're not getting their lies together. I think it's more than that, though. And let's read about they. Same verse, Mark 16:8. It said, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
Who's the they? I've been pretty hard on the women so far, haven't I? The women that came to it. But are we talking about just women here? Or is there somebody else he's talking about? They were afraid. What about the disciples? Were they afraid? Where were they? They were hunkered down in some room somewhere hiding. The purpose of the disciples was to take care of the teacher. Did they do a good job of taking care of their teacher? Was it the disciples who invited Jesus into their house? Or was it Simon the leopard? Was it the disciples that anointed him with a year's salary of oil? Was it the disciples who volunteered to carry Jesus' cross? Was it the disciples who went up and took Jesus' body off the cross? And was it the disciples who went to the tomb to anoint the body with oil? Did the disciples do any of that? No. And why didn't they do it? Because they were afraid. Now there's other words in this I want you to pay attention to. I want to touch on just four of them. Fled, trembling, astonishment, and afraid. Fled, to flee away, seek safety by flight. Where were they? They were in the tomb. Who was in the tomb? Roman soldiers? No, it was an angel in the tomb. Were they being attacked by somebody? No. Where was the fear? What danger were they seeking to fly from when they fled? Was the danger outside of themselves that they perceived or were they perceiving some problems inside themselves? And they were trying to flee from themselves. We'll come back to trembling in a second. I want to talk about astonishment. The state of one either owing to the importance of the novelty of an event is thrown into a sense of blended fear and wonderment. Do you think that applies to the women? Blended fear and wonderment. I'm sure they were in wonderment that the body was gone. The Bible tells us they were afraid. So I think the astonishment fits in this case. A blended of fear and wonderment. And let's talk about afraid. It says, for they were afraid. The Greek word for afraid is phobio, for which we get our word phobia. I once had a nurse that was afraid of spiders. And I had a picture, a picture of a spider on my desk. And she wouldn't even come into the room. That's what phobia. And if you look down at number three, you hesitate to do something because of fear. Well, what were the women and the disciples hesitating to do? because of fear. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But that's a phobia, hesitating to do something because of fear. And now we're gonna come to trembling. So it said, and they went out and fled. They weren't in any danger, but they were fleeing. For trembling and astonishment, combination of wonderment and fear, for they were afraid, they had a phobia. What does trembling mean? Trembling is used to describe the anxiety of one who distrusts his ability to completely meet all requirements. To meet all requirements. You ever have trembling? You ever were expected to do something and you had the fear you couldn't meet all the requirements? I put the EKG up at the top to remind me of a story. I had just finished medical school and it was my first day as a doctor. And where they put me was on their critical care cardiac unit. <laughs> 15 beds of critically ill, sick heart patients. A day before, I was a carefree medical student. 
just kind of walking around, sticking my head and just saying, hey, what can I see here? Now all of a sudden, I'm the person running this 15-bed CCU. And it was an L-shaped. And over the speaker, I heard code blue, room 26, which was around the corner. So I thought, okay, this is going to be fun. I'm going to walk around and I'll see how these guys take care of a code. I walk around the room, the corner, walk into the room. I'm the only person there with the nurses. They turned to me and said, okay, doctor, what do you want to do? Fear and trembling because you distrust your ability to meet all the requirements. Were the women, were the disciples given requirements that they were expected now that Jesus was gone? After all, he was with them for several years, gave them instructions, told them what to do, and now they were on their own. Do you think that caused any fear amongst them? I think it did, just like I was afraid. That didn't mean I didn't want to be a doctor. That didn't mean I didn't encourage further training, but it was scary. So what are the requirements? What did God require them to do? Well, one of the things God requires you to do is to leave your childish things behind. When you were a child, you drank milk, but now you're not a child anymore. You can't come to church, just listen, and go home. God's requirements are more than that. Does that scare you? Does it scare Christopher Robin as he was leaving his childhood behind? I think it did. Are there childish things that you do that you know you should give up, that you continue to do? What else does God require us to do? I think God requires us to engage a a hostile culture. The culture you're living in is more anti-Christian than I've ever seen anywhere. Now, I know a lot of you are older than I am. I'm 66, but that's quite a few years, and I've never seen anti-Christian raise up as much as it is now. And like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz was told she had to engage her culture if she expected to survive, I think we're expected to engage our culture as well. What about give on to Caesar? But the pigs look like men and the men look like pigs. Are you waiting for your government to come and save you from something? Are you expecting just, I just need the right government and everything will be better? I don't like, did I turn that off? Are you expecting the government to come and save you? That you don't like the government, I'll just vote a different way and things will be a lot better? Or do you realize that the men and the pig look a lot the same? And what about your ability to meet God's requirements. Does that scare you? You know, when I met Margaret, we've been married for almost 40 years now. I was, I loved her dearly, but I was afraid to get married. And you know why I was afraid to get married? It was because I knew the requirements of what was required of me once I got married. And I felt frightened that I couldn't fulfill those requirements. Love her like Christ loved the church. Can I do that? And that's my requirement. That's frightening. With the Holy Spirit, you can get closer, but it's very hard. So all these things, I think, went through the women's minds when they were, at, when they were coming back from the grave. And they were probably thinking about them in their minds, and that's why they weren't talking very much. They were talking, thinking about leaving their childish things, engaging a, a culture, you know, their culture was the Roman culture. They were hoping to get rid of it. It didn't happen. They had to live in that culture. So yes, I think Mark intended for it to end there. That's where he wanted Mark to end. So you can think about those things. Think about the fear 
that comes about. Now, should the fear be a phobia where it prevents you from doing any action? No, it shouldn't. It should be a healthy fear that you continue to do what you need to do. Now, if you noticed before, let me go back to that. I put requirements in quotation marks. There's only one requirement, and the requirement is that you accept Jesus Christ as your personal God and Savior. The rest of those things don't get you into heaven. The rest of those things don't give you your salvation, right? And that's why requirements is in quotation marks. But if you are saved, then I think those things up there are the things that you'll want to do. All right, why don't you go ahead and stand up for a word of prayer. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you not wanting to have a heart of fear. We want to be bold. We want to be the witnesses for you. Uh, We admit, Lord, that because we're sinful people, that very often we do have fear. But please don't let us paralyze us. Please let it just be a way of helping us through these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I told you that I might get back to this thing about Galilee, right? I said, Jesus, when he came back, wanted to meet the disciples again. And where did he choose? Galilee. Mark 16, 7. But go, tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. Why Galilee? And I think the answer is in Matthew eleven twenty three. Galilee was the center of Jesus's ministry for the first three years. And in particular, there was a city, Capernaum, that he lived in. And I've been in Capernaum. I've walked the streets. It's a small city. And there's a synagogue there that you can still see the base of it. And Jesus did lots of miracles there. But even though he did the miracles, it says, and you, Capernaum, will not, will not, this is Jesus's hometown, will not be exalted heaven, will you? He will be brought down to Hades. Well, that's strong language. For if the miracles that occurred in you had occurred in Sodom, that's Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have remained, it, Sodom, would have remained to this very day. Now, what is Capernaum? I've been there, and it's not a place. As Dr. Ray Vanderlaan says, Capernaum is right here in your heart. You have seen everything Jesus has done. You have heard all the stories. You have sit here and listened, and you know. And very often, the warnings of the Bible are not for the people that are the wickedest, but the warnings of the Bible are for the people who should know better, and they don't do it. So are you Capernaum? Are you that person sitting here for years and has never made a commitment to Christ? I want you to think about that, because if that's you, it would be better that you were in Sodom than you are in your position you are right now. Will has one last song for you, and when Will's done, he'll dismiss you.